Are you getting pressure from finance to justify or reduce your cloud bill? CloudZero is the only cloud cost platform loved by engineers and trusted by finance. CloudZero can identify unused, idle, or over-provisioned resources, alert you to spend anomalies, and organize 100% of your spend into a framework that mirrors your business structure, like cost per customer, product feature, or team. It's the most powerful platform ever built to provide accurate, granular visibility into your total cloud spend without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. Manage cost, optimize development, and maximize profit all in one platform. Join companies like Rapid7, Drift, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash cloudcast to get started. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast. Visit today to experience immediate and ongoing savings on your cloud bill. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to The Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it is Aaron for Cloud News this week, and it is the beginning of June. I just, I can't even believe that. But... Um, we've got some really good cloud news articles this week, but I also feel like we need to mention the elephant in the room. Um, certainly not enterprise tech, but certainly emerging tech. Apple announced their AR VR headset. Um, uh, I don't know. Won't be out for another year. And when it does finally come out, no one will be able to afford it. So we'll see. I, I don't know what else to say beyond that. So we're just going to jump right into our news this week. Uh, first article this week, uh, Reddit announced earlier that they are going to start charging for API requests. And this is a trend we're starting to see. And this is a larger shift in the market. A lot of organizations that were supported by ad revenue previously, some of that ad revenue with the changing economy starting to dry up a little bit. So what are some ways that they can make money? Well, APIs kind of makes everything go round. We've talked about it many times on this show. It's, it's you know, the way uh, organizations are talking to each other. It's the way everyone's accessing their data. And oh, by the way, it's where a lot of the security uh, impacts are happening as well. But Reddit is looking to charge somewhere in the neighborhood of $12,000 for 50 million API requests. Now, that, you know, sounds 50 million. That sounds like a big number. But, you know, for instance, there was a, a vendor in the article that they would be looking at 7 billion requests a month. So about $1.7 million per month or about $20 million per year for them to continue to um, do API requests against Reddit. So some pretty significant impacts to this. And there's lots of protesting about it. There's lots of like subreddits going quiet. And um, it'll be interesting to see where this ends up. Now, the next one, and this is actually, uh, I don't know who is in charge of PR over at Core Weave, but kudos. Um, so on Wednesday, they announced a $200 million funding round. And if you're not familiar with them, think of them as a vendor that specializes in providing and partnering with NVIDIA for GPUs. And... Uh, really powering a lot of the folks that are looking to do open AI and chat GPT in particular. So they announced a 200 
million dollar funding round on a valuation of $2 billion. And then they also announced, hey, by the way, we're partnering with Microsoft. And so Microsoft actually probably secured this earlier this year, but it came out as well at the same time. Um, Microsoft is, you know, struggling with the demand of OpenAI. So how can they ensure pipeline and ensure continued growth? Well, they partnered with CoreWeave. So uh, really good, uh, interesting partnerships happening and, and, you know, funding rounds happening. And CoreWeave, for instance, you know, brought out uh, the new cutting edge NVIDIA GPUs. And I talked about that in a Cloud News article, gosh, I don't know, two, three months ago, somewhere thereabouts. So good for them. They're, they're certainly killing it. And they had a hell of a week. And for our third and final article, GitLab. GitLab uh, really did well from an earnings standpoint. They reported earnings and they beat guidance. So you, what do you always want to do when you're reporting earnings? You want to beat and then you want to raise expectations. Well, they did both. They beat guidance and they raised expectations for the year. And because of that, their stock went on a healthy jump um, and certainly good for them and wish them continued success. Uh, if you want to dig into the financials deep, you can, of course, look at the Cloud News show notes and uh, this and all the other articles are in-depth in there. So with that, I'm going to wrap up Cloud News for this week. And coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about economics and beyond about object storage. And we're going to be talking to John over at Cloudian about it. Today's episode of the Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs into one tightly integrated platform. Datadog APM empowers developer teams to identify anomalies, resolve issues, and improve application performance. Begin collecting stack traces, visualizing them as flame graphs, organizing them into profile types such as CPU, I.O., and more. Teams can search for specific profiles, correlate them with distributed traces, and identify slow or underperforming code for analysis and optimization. Plus, with Datadog APM Live Search, you can perform searches across the full stream of ingested traces generated by your application over the last 15 minutes. Try Datadog APM free with a 14-day trial and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadog.com slash APM dash cloudcast to get started. That's datadog.com slash APM dash cloudcast. And we're back. And what we're going to do this week is really explore a topic that's, as a technology, been around for quite some time. But we want to do a little bit of a different spin this week. We want to talk about object storage, but we want to talk a little bit about economies um, of around it and what has kind of happened over the last 10 plus years and, and what the future is for object storage as well. So in order to do that, we went out and found an expert like we tend to always do here on the show. And so we have John Tor, CMO at Cloudian this week. Welcome to the show, John, and tell everyone a little bit about your background. Well, hey, thank you very much, and it is great to be here. I, I guess my background could be really sum, summarized very quickly. It's basically all storage all the time. Uh, I began my career actually as a design engineer on hard drives uh, with Seagate when Seagate was a tiny little company um, based on a small town near here where I lived in Los Gatos. They were in Scotts Valley, and my storage career progressed through uh, hard drives in the engineering side into hard drives on the marketing side and then systems on the marketing side 
And that's really kind of where I've stuck ever since. I've done a few different startups. I've been involved in a few uh, large companies. Uh, so a lot of variety, but uh, it kind of all revolves around storage. Fantastic. And, and Cloudian is really interesting to me for multiple reasons. And, and I believe like your career and in, in Cloudian kind of parallel in many ways. Um, you know, Cloudian, first of all, has, has kind of been around, I'll say since before object storage was cool. Um, you know, when it was kind of a, an emerging technology way back when, and we first heard about Cloudian back in the, the OpenStack days, and for longtime listeners, they'll remember that in, in early AWS S3 days. And, and so object, certain, uh, object storage certainly has come a long way. And so can you help everyone frame like, where were we and where are we today? Yeah, one thing that's generally true about storage technologies is they tend to have a very long gestation period. Uh, they sit on the shelf uh, being you know, relatively unused for quite a long time before a use case comes along that really drives adoption. Uh, Fiber Channel was exactly the same way. It, it sat it, essentially on a shelf of, out in Minneapolis for many, many years uh, before parallel SCSI ran out of gas and it became a, a need to do something new and different. Well, object storage is the same way. Um, object storage, as you rightly pointed out, started a long time ago. It actually started as a way of making data immutable. It was introduced by EMC commercially as a system to protect uh, healthcare records so they couldn't be changed. And um, that was you know, a, definitely a use case, but it wasn't going to drive any large-scale adoption. Well, what happened was as we you know, progressed through block storage, file storage, and then you know, into the cloud, the cloud providers recognized that they really needed a extremely scalable storage environment to meet the needs of their cloud customers. I mean, you, you were not going to be able to build a, a hyperscale environment on file. In fact, the last, hyper, the last you know, major cloud provider that was built on file was, was Yahoo. Uh, every every major cloud provider after that was built on object storage. So they saw the need to do things at a totally different scale. That drove uh, adoption of object storage. And what came along with it was that object storage became endowed with a whole bunch of cloud capabilities. So you got really two things. You got the underlying technology, object storage, and then you got this protocol, this API which you know, is now adopted as Amazon AWS S3. And that endowed object storage with a whole bunch of cloud capabilities that made it you know, multi-site, multi-tenant, uh, gave it you know, multi-part uh, upload capabilities, which was really important for moving large files over the internet. So you got really this, this, this set of use cases of cloud demands that made object storage something completely different than what it started out as and, and really made it, you know, the storage of the next generation. And, and I'll add to this too, like, yeah, I think the object storage to your point was always there, but I think it was the S3 compatible APIs that really solidified the use cases are kind of across the board. Right. And, and so ever since then, We've seen this rise of what I'll, I'll just term enterprise class S3 compatible object storage, right? And, and that's where the use cases really started to explode. You see hybrid cloud, you see especially data sovereignty these days with data sovereignty laws. And most recently, analytics, such as data warehouses, data lake houses kinds of things popping up as well. And so where are you seeing 
implementations these days. And because we've really moved beyond basic, simple storage for the cloud backends, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, that, and that's been a really interesting evolution around this. And storage is always driven by the use cases. You, know, you have to have the use case demanding the capabilities of this, of this class of storage before a customer is going to go out and buy it. You, no, no, one, no one adopts a new technology and then waits for the use cases. They, they encounter the use cases and then they adopt the new technology. So that's exactly what's happened here. And what we've seen is that as... Uh, these um, use cases have become cloud-enabled. That's really what's driven the adoption of object storage. And let me tell you what I mean by that: cloud-enabled. So, so backup is a is a classic example because when you're looking to backup your data center, you need a target, right? The data has to go somewhere, and cloud emerged as a you know a a good target for backup data. So, as a result all of the enterprise backup vendors adopted the S3 API as, as one of their supported protocols so they could use the cloud as a backup target. Well, obviously, once you've adopted the S3 API as, as a protocol, you can now put that data anywhere that has S3-compatible storage. It doesn't have to be in the cloud. It can be on-prem just as easily. So because the backup vendors all went and did that, it emerged, you know, backup emerged as one of the key use cases for S3 compatible storage on-prem. Well, we've seen that same thing happen as you as you already said, with data lake houses, analytics, all the vendors in that space also are looking to make their software be cloud enabled. And so that's another emerging use case. And we're seeing this across the board. We're seeing this in M&E, we're seeing this in healthcare, uh, we're seeing it in, in all kinds of data analysis software Everyone is looking to make their software cloud-enabled, but when they do that, they're also making it just S3-enabled so we can deploy S3-compatible storage on-prem and get the exact same benefits. And kind of aside to that, because you did mention this earlier as well and just kind of popped into my head, tell everyone a little bit too, because I, you know, I think, again, go back to the early days of all of this, and it's the more simple storage aspects of all of this. You know, we started to see some security concerns early on, right? And then you start to see data privacy, you know, the rise of that. And as I mentioned, data sovereignty as well. And, and so how big of an issue these days, uh, other than, you know, obviously very large, is security in all of this? And, and how has the evolution of security as, you know, more copies of data kind of get in more places? Yeah, it's it's huge. The security issues and concerns that customers have are huge. But interestingly enough, this is an area where S3 compatible storage really can shine because, um, well, first of all, think about you know, ransomware protection, for example. For, to protect your data from ransomware, the, the best way to do it is to make it immutable, right? You can, if you can make it a, a copy of your data that's unchangeable, uh, ransomware cannot go in and encrypt your data. That's not, it's not possible. And so as a result, your data is protected from the most common form of ransomware hacking. Well, as I, as I said up front, you know, actually that was the original use case of object storage was immutability. <laughs> That's what EMC sold it as, you know, 20 plus years ago. And interestingly enough, you know, AWS with S3 
uh, improved on that with a standard for how you manage that immutability. They created a you know a, a protocol called Object Lock that um, made it possible to manage that immutability feature in a standardized way. So as a result, you know the, the backup vendors adapted Object Lock as one of their as one of their APIs. Uh, we implemented Object Lock, and it's been a key driver of data protection uh, on S3 compatible storage. Uh, because you can protect your data from hacking, hacker intrusion, uh, it solved one of the big problems we saw happening when COVID started coming along. Right? When COVID started, we saw an enormous uptick in ransomware attacks uh, because of people working from home. You know, they became more vulnerable to uh, you know, email phishing attacks, et cetera. So that became a, a huge driver. But security overall, and this kind of gets into that next thing, I mean, kind of where, where is object storage going? Um, object storage is, a, is becoming the de facto for private clouds of all kinds. And data sovereignty is a major use case for private clouds. So you think about governments or uh, highly regulated industries who need to keep their data in specific environments because of you know regula- regulatory concerns, um, just pure, pure geographical boundary concerns. They want to create a private cloud to manage that data. Well, obviously, the re- what they're concerned about it with that data is sensitivity, right? That the government's got government records, it's got healthcare records. So protecting that data becomes job one. You know, you've got to make sure that data is is secure, and it's got to be bulletproof. So you you want it to be secure, but at the same time, you want it to be accessible because you're you're putting it in this private cloud the whole point is to make it accessible by the people that need to use it so it, you can't you can't rely just on the confines of the data center you got to have security protocols that are best in breed and can be used uh, by when they're accessing the data from anywhere well that's exactly what we have implemented with Cloudia. we have more security certifications than anybody else in the business these are government security uh, security certifications set by the SEC, set by the Department of Justice, set by, you know, the uh, government agencies that buy this kind of storage and use it in their, in their own private clouds. Uh, Cloudian was the storage of MillCloud 2, and we just announced we uh, we want to deal with the Department of Defense for their new version of their government cloud. So security has become, had been part and parcel of our message for years now, and we worked very hard to enhance that story. So basically what we've got is a private cloud which is as secure or more than you know the best, most secure data environments you can buy anywhere. And what that means is now you can set up the sovereign cloud environment uh, in your data center and know that you know that, da- that data is protected from ransomware attack. It's protected from external attacks, you know, from um, people coming in from the outside, and it's protected even from people within your own data center. You know, we lock down. Uh, the box itself with by disabling root access such that even if you have physical access to the box, you don't have a way of tampering with it. So we've, we've, we've addressed this from all levels. And what that's done is it's made us a great solution for um, these sovereign cloud environments. And we're, we're currently in environments in Germany, in New Zealand, in Australia, in several different companies in APAC, countries in APAC, um, 
other places in EMEA. I mean, Sovereign Cloud has emerged as being a really important use case for S3 compatible storage and security is one of the key reasons why. Fantastic. And, and, and I'll add this too, like we'll dig into another topic here, which is, which is cost and cost effectiveness. Because if I look at, you know, like take, um, uh, the last KubeCon here in the United States back in Detroit, one of the big, you know, themes, if you will, was, was cost. Another big one was security. And especially with, the economic environment's changing slightly, like interest rates starting to go up and, and you know, VC, Monday, VC funding isn't quite uh, as loose as it used to be and interest rates going up. You know, there's a lot of folks really starting to figure out, okay, how do I secure everything? But how do I also make sure the economics makes sense? And, and so we're starting to see this more in design conversations, but I'll, I'll just say there's always a, a healthy tension if I use that term, between what's technically possible and what's economically feasible. Just because something can be built doesn't mean it's economically viable at times. And so how does that kind of design conversation play out lately? Well, that's been a very interesting dynamic over the past, you know, three, four years. Um, Object storage has always been a highly cost-effective platform because it's built on industry standard hardware and that's been true you know for for many many years now so our underlying hardware platform is very cost effective our software itself tends to be very efficient and low overhead in the way that we you know store the data and protect the data so the cost of object storage versus other storage types has always been very very competitive matter of fact we're substantially less expensive than than most file or 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 block systems so if, if you just compare apples to apples you know, our storage class versus others, that's, that's always been an easy conversation. You're going to, you're going to save, you're going to save money with object storage. The conversation that's become, you know, right on front and center of people's minds has been, well, what about cloud, right? Because if I go to cloud, then I'm purely on a OPEX model. I only pay for what I use. And, you know, I can have uh, the ability, you know, flexibility of growing without ever having to lay out any additional capital expense. And that's, you know, that's obviously been a, uh, you know, an interesting conversation. And at the start of COVID, that conversation became, it took on a new dimension, which was my on-prem data center has become hard to manage, right? Getting people to go into my data center to, to run it, to install new stuff, to maintain it has become difficult. And so that made the cloud, uh, that tipped the hand for the cloud during that conversation. Fast forward a few years though, now we're, we're, kind of, we're moving out of that era. What we've seen is this. What we've seen now is that you know, on-prem object storage and cloud have both become so similar in so many ways. We use the same API, we offer the same kind of enterprise scalability. We really, um, we really made a very different kind of storage environment that parallels very much the capabilities of cloud, but with one key difference, and that is, you know, we are primarily a a capex model where you're buying the equipment up front, whereas cloud continues to be an opex. So, depending on your use case, one could end up being substantially less expensive than the other. And what we're seeing is customers are now evaluating their use cases. They're now looking at hey, if, I'm, if, I, if I know what I'm going to be consuming, I know I can predict my storage requirements, 
because I'm managing a large data set that is of a fairly known size, it's likely it's going to be a lot less expensive for me to operate my own environment than it is to go out and and buy it essentially in a rental, you know, buy it by the drink in a, in a public cloud environment. So what we're seeing now is customers are making that assessment rather than just saying, you know what, I, I'm having trouble running my own data center because of staffing, because of, you know, uh, COVID's constraints. Now they're saying, I need to make a decision per use case on where it makes sense for me to run this workload. And that decision could be driven by data sovereignty. That decision could be driven by cost. That decision could be driven by latency, right? Depending on where that data is being sourced and where it's being used. And based on those requirements, I'm going to make a decision on where I should run that environment. So it's no longer just a, you know, let's just let's just go to the cloud. Now I've got a choice of exactly where I run this. And I don't have to make it a choice based on technology because I can run the same data types, I can run the same applications on-prem or in the cloud, and I can manage them the same way. So technology is no longer a, you know, a necessarily a driver in this. It may be in some cases, but in many cases, I can do the same thing either place. So it really comes down to where does it make business sense to run this application, to run this workload, and you know, what's the best way of going and doing that? And uh, that's where object storage is really kind of emerging as being the on-prem cloud. And that's why hybrid cloud is such a key part of our messaging, because what we're saying is if you've got workloads that can run, you know, in a cloud-enabled way, you have a choice. You can run those workloads on-prem, do the math. Is that, does that make sense for you? Or you can run them in the cloud. And what we're seeing now is customers are very much making that choice based on some, you know, pretty serious analysis of their workloads. And I'll, I'll add maybe a potentially another vector to that, because this is what, what you know, as you were talking about that, um, there was a term that was really, you know, thrown around a, a number of years ago, and I, I haven't heard it nearly as much recently, and that's the term of data gravity. Um, and, and so the concept for those unfamiliar with it is th- this idea that data has a certain amount of weight um, a certain gravity and it attracts more data to it. You know, existing sources become hard to move over time and then the, more and more tends to get added to it. And, and so what we, especially with, I would say the rise of hybrid and multi-cloud um, folks don't think about it or talk about it as much. You know, we used to talk about, Oh, make sure you, you're placing this in the right locations. And you had, had, you know, the ingress and egress charges and all these other, you know, things to think about. Well, now we're in a, an environment where we are seeing more hybrid and multi-cloud solutions. We are seeing larger and larger data sets. And so where are folks building these large data sets and where, what are they building them for? And last question, you know, are they ever moving them or, or is it, you know, more of the latency is good enough kind of scenario? Yeah. Data gravity is definitely a driver. Uh, you know, a large, large data sets are difficult to move and, uh, you know, <laughs> as a result, we've, you know, the industry has developed all kinds of physical workarounds including putting storage in trucks and moving them that way. 
you know the old the old joke you, you know you can't beat the bandwidth of a you know of a station wagon full of tapes moving down the highway um that goes back a lot of years to when we had station wagons um <laughs> but the same is true now you know even even in the post station wagon era people are still moving their data in trucks uh for the same reason um and they and they, it hap- it does happen and data gravity is absolutely a concern when people are collecting a lot of data in one place um you know, it, it is certainly easier to just leave it there and operate on the data there. Um, and now, because you have the ability of running that workload, whatever that workload is, you know, if it's a cloud-enabled workload, you have the ability to run that date, that workload wherever the data is. That decision just got a whole lot easier, right? You no longer have to worry about how am I going to move that data? You say, well, I just need, I can bring the workload to the data. I don't have to change the work. I don't have to change the software. I can run things the same way. I can just do it close to the data. So that conversation has actually gotten easier, but it's also taken on new dimensions because data gravity is not only, now is not only the, you know, the, the size of the data, but it's also, you know, the, the physical location of the data versus, you know, in relation to what that data is. So TikTok is the, is the classic example right now, right? They've got all this user data. And the question now is where does all that user data reside? And so that's what TikTok's, you know, Project Texas is all about is they were saying, well, that data, that user data is now going to reside in Texas because that's going to you know, alleviate the privacy concerns. And that's really become more the compelling issue today about where you know where does that data physically reside and how do I make sure that I'm complying with you know the data sovereignty requirements. Um, so I would say data gravity, you know, the ability to move data is probably you know, important. Data sovereignty today is probably even more important. Uh, latency is is always a concern, right? If I'm if I'm running a workload in a clinic, for example, uh, I'm, I'm trying to access healthcare records or or images. If I'm running, if those images are stored in the cloud, how long is it going to take? Well, if that cloud is in, for example, in Singapore, where the you know AWS region is for that area, and my application is in Vietnam, and I'm having to move that that uh, data back and forth in undersea cables. What's the latency involved in that? How how quickly am I going to be able to access that data? So that's that's definitely a, you know a a, um, a point of conversation today as well. And then finally the cost. So I guess the point is that data gravity now has kind of multiple dimensions, um, and all of these things are saying you know I need to factor all these things in when I decide where I'm going to run the application. And that's where hybrid gets so important because. Now you can say, well, I can run that application wherever it needs to be. I don't have to change the software. I don't have to change my processes. I can run the I can run the application close to the data, and the conversation just got a whole lot easier. And I'm potentially saving myself some money at the same time. So it's a win-win. Very nice, very nice. So, John, one last question for you, and maybe this is also some advice for, uh, you know, other folks starting companies or, or, you know, thinking about business, we like to approach the business side of this as well. And so Claudian is really well known for their partnerships, their alliances and, and their solutions, right? You, you have quite a mix. And part of that maybe just goes back to 
um, being a startup that has been around a lot longer than other startups. But, but if you look at the mix, right, there's hardware companies, there's software companies, there's backup companies, there's public clouds. I mean, there's a little mix of everything and anything in there. It's, and, and so has this been, first of all, intentional and, and, and a factor in Claudian's longevity and tell everyone a little bit about this, how this came to be and how important you see this for the future. Yeah, we we are so very proud of our of our alliance partners because uh, you know they're really key to our our business, and really I can think about these in three categories. Uh, the first would be you know the alliance partners that are related to our use cases. So the most obvious example would be backup, you know, where we work very closely with with Veeam and and Rubrik, uh, and, and Commvault and Veritas. And re- working with those partners is is so important because you know that our our ability to integrate with them to provide a solution which is plug and play and, and really satisfies the customer's needs uh in the in the least cost in, in the most cost effective and the in the in the most performant way uh, has been really critical so working closely with those guys has been so important to us uh, and then we're seeing it now with the analytics vendors uh, you know working with folks like teradata and vertica and cribble and uh, Splunk and you know working in the with in the analytics world, uh, you know Microsoft SQL is a, is now a partner of ours and you know who who you know Microsoft SQL adopting the S3 API. There's there's an amazing one for you. <laughs> so working with those partners has been a key to driving our use cases. The second thing is channels, because you know we we need routes to market and we are always sold as part of a larger environment. Obviously, it's never it's never a standalone thing. It's always a larger solution. So working with folks like Lenovo uh, and HP GreenLake, you know, we're now part of the HP GreenLake environment, uh, has been so important because they're you know great channels into that market. And then the third area is is kind of kind of a catch-all, and that's hybrid cloud, um, because as the as the cloud providers start looking at you know how they p- provide services closer to their users, uh, so they can. Uh, address data sovereignty concerns, for example. Um, we are a solution for that S3 storage that is local to the user. So we're working with AWS on Outposts, which is you know their uh, hybrid cloud solution that's on-prem. Uh, we're also working with AWS on local zones, which is their uh, re- sort of mini region <laughs> that sits closer to the user but provides uh, capabilities just as if you were in an AWS region. Uh, so we are storage for uh, Outpost. We are storage for local zones. Uh, so working in these hybrid cloud environments with, with AWS and others is a really critical one. And I would put in that same category, we work with cloud providers worldwide to provide cloud services that they go, they turn around and offer, including some of the largest in the world, like Ionos in, over in EMEA, massive cloud provider uh, that uh, you know relies on Cloudian as the underlying storage infrastructure for for object storage. So those you know hybrid cloud environments, private cloud environments, are the are the third class of of major partnership. All of these are really critical to driving our business, and we work really hard to make sure we have a well-integrated and well-supported solution for each of them. 
Fantastic. Well, with that, I think that's a great place to to really close this out. Um, John, I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time this week and, and your insights on all of this. And uh, everyone that's out there, thank you very much for listening. And, and if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Please tell a friend, and we certainly want to continue to grow the community. And if you have any feedback, certainly reach out at any time. And so on behalf of Brian and myself, Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 